I'm told it feels like when the moon hits your eye like a pizza pie. In the honor of Age of Adelaide, know what's a straight-up romance you actually love? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, because when has getting a bucket of noodles seemed so romantic? It's me, Dave with the Seven, and the last minutes of Amelie can lift me out of any mood and make me believe in love again. I'm at Patches, and I don't know if there's such thing as straight-up romance movies. There's always a twist. But I'm going to go with The Shop Around the Corner because it seems like the sweetest. It's not the uh, will-they-won't-they. It's a when-they. And I'm David Ehrlich. Matt Patches wrote my answer for me, (laughs) and he says either before sunset or certified copy. (laughs) Drink! Which one? Which one? (laughs) Both together. Ah! (laughs) Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 68 for Tuesday, April 21st, 2015, the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. We have two new reviews this week, according to David Ehrlich. David, you want to take it away? Sure. Uh, we have two <laughs> reviews this week. He was too busy reading them. Oh, scanning no, for his None name. of these the reviews first, are about the Rangers. The told. first by Nick Ondras, who says, it's a film reference. And gives us a tempered three out of five stars. And left a review that I uh, enjoyed. I found quite quite curious. He says, I guess the title is a reference, in parentheses, film. But they never, to a movie, rather, in parentheses, film. But they never explain it. Why is there a seven instead of a V in Dave's name? Like, no, these are all fair. These are all It's actually know, Furious I, V. I'm still reading the goddamn review. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I don't know, but I have a big crush on Katie. Always have. Nice. I listen to this podcast with my kids on the car radio on the way to court. I'm a lawyer, LOL. David Elysium is their favorite co-host. Their favorite moment was when he related World War Z to Shoah. In one episode, and we talked about how similar the two films were while waiting for a case to start. Oh, sorry, I added a period there. Uh, Good podcast if you like people talking about movies, but skip if you don't watch movies like me. Matt Patches is another host, and he's good. Sorry, typing on phone. This sounds like something I would write on Ambien. A Um, lot of histories. Yeah, a lot of histories here. Number one, why are you bringing your kids to court with you? (laughs) Well, and he discusses movies with them before court starts, so it sounds like they're coming further into court with him. Or maybe it's a wacky Tim Allen comedy, where Tim Allen's a lawyer and he has his kids, but the kids are actually the ones who know how to beat the... However, unlike Wacky Tim Allen comedies, I enjoyed that review. So I'll leave it there. That was very uh, we, we also have a quite lengthy review. I don't know how much of this I'm going to read by Jmart007 2007, who says, Want intelligent discussions about film and pop culture? Look no further. This is the best film podcast out there. I've been listening since Operation Kino days. And what keeps me Whoa. coming back is the consistently intelligent conversations about films, pop culture from four very intelligent critics. Their film reviews are also top notch. Or movie what? reviews. <laughs> Right. Uh, and he goes on and says, or she, and says, uh, lots of very nice things. It's quite long, which, uh, we appreciate very much personally, but doesn't necessarily make for the, the best material on the show to read all of this. Why Let's not? I want to hear it. Oh, oh, fine. Uh, but le- readers David gets dry mouth. Rather- Patches did this to you. Um, want someone to mindlessly say what they liked or hated a film and they only give surface reasons why? 
I like the scenery. I like the acting. I thought this was fun, etc. Look someplace else. Ooh. Want I was meeting? hoping they were going to name names. That's <laughs> like, so which one of us just says really that? Start you guys some just shit. Didn't constantly interrupt me for the love of God. <laughs> <laughs> want some meaning and in depth reasons and actual critiquing? Look no further. And what's a great podcast without its host? Katie, the leader, the much needed voice of reason. She's also the rarity in the podcast world and especially the film podcast world in that she is a female. You're going to cut this out? Jesus. It seems unfair to rate a podcaster based on gender, but there are so few women in the podcast world that she brings a much needed perspective. Thankfully, yep. this has started to change the likes of Joanna Robinson and Amy Nicholson, but she's an original. We she, both, like we me, love all, all also of you. seems all... to be slightly behind in terms of needing to see older films. That's okay, <laughs> though. We all have our blind spots. Mine are to name three, Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz. My mom was scared of the movie as a child, so it was practically <laughs> banned in our house. And Blade Runner. Patches, the Wait, one I probably relate to the most. Wait, what? Scared of the Wizard of Oz? I first oh, got yeah, introduced to him and Katie and the rest of the podcast, for that matter, when he and Katie did a video essay on my favorite film, Superman the Movie, back yeah. in the early days. Oh, Operation my Keys, God. I remember when that. It was mostly video essays. If anyone talks about 1978 Superman, chances are I'll listen. If anyone talks about how they enjoyed it, chances are you found a new fan. Four years later, and I'm still listening to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. However, we're still reading this review. Their entire life saying appreciation instead of appreciation. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> He's otherwise great, though. D- David, the enigma. I like that. You never know what his opinion from one film to the next is going to be. He also seems to appreciate Indiana Jones of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, while seemingly no one else on the planet does, except for myself, sure. CGI, and Shia aside. The film still has the same sense of joy in its story and filmmaking as the other three. <laughs> it's why I can forgive him on his stance with Marvel. That's saying, the more he goes against Marvel, the more persuasive his argument becomes. David's also a hockey fan, so extra points for him. Even though he's a Rangers fan, in parentheses, go Bruins. David's parentheses, they missed the playoff. <laughs> he's not a Canadiens fan. True. P.S. Well wishes for your father. That's nice. I hope everything will be okay. Dave Seven, also a great contributor to the Tuesday shows. I just wish we got to hear more from him during the review segments. I don't get his stance on spoilers, though. I've gone on long enough. Keep up the good work, guys. Keep on podcasting, and I'll keep listening. Thank you very much, Jmart007. I like that these reviews have become more involved and more, like, of the moment. (laughs) They're not broad. They're not, great job. They're... Destructing. And we're learning I, about I hope your father. I hope your father it. is okay. Slash. Is that a film <laughs> reference in your title? I like the balance. <laughs> the whole yes, spectrum. We're good. We have. We have like, great. Great. Thank listeners. you, everybody. The more that we involve our own lives into this podcast, the more our reviewers involve their lives. I kind of like that balance. It only. I know, it only it's only a swirl. Whirl. Whirl. Check it out. Yo, I be like Yiggy, yes, y'all. Doctor on call, I rock to my name and graffiti on the wall. Got flow like the rappers in Great George. Got, I got, my name Jamal, I pause. Flick the ash. The Rebecca Film Festival kicked off last Wednesday with the screening of a documentary about Saturday Night Live, which is about as appropriate as it can get for a film festival set in New York City. Uh, from there, it's been the usual mishmash that is the Tribeca Film Festival. I think we've discussed at length how strange this festival can be and how full of movies that you might not otherwise see. But uh, Patches and David and I have all seen a fair number of movies. I think David more than any of us, which might be the first year. Yes, he now has an obligation to do so. so. Yeah, as a uh, representative of a great publication of the city of New York, David has seen a lot of Tribeca movies. But I do think that every year at Tribeca there are movies worth discussing, you know, aside from the star-driven indies that you'll never, ever see. Uh, This year I've managed to see a lot of documentaries that I thought were worthwhile, but I kind of wanted to start with David. Like, what what about the Tribeca Film Festival does anybody in the outside world need to know this year? 
Well, I think what becomes increasingly apparent with every passing year, and this may be something we've talked about in previous uh, iterations of the festival, is that there is a really strong documentary film festival buried underneath all the corporate, you know, miasma of, of you know, product placements and whatnot and everything else and all of the abysmal narrative features that star a host of famous people in the Sundance films that didn't work, quite work out. Uh, and wind up at the Tribeca Film Festival, films like Ashby and Bear and uh, etc. Uh, these are films that you will likely never hear of and might come across one night on VOD or Netflix. Um, but I've seen a number of very strong documentaries, and I think that if you're coming to this festival and uh, if you're a film that's in this festival, it's starting to mean something to be a documentary in Tribeca, or at least to be one of the documentaries that stands out. I think some of these films are certainly of Sundance caliber um, and just weren't ready in time. And the, the best one I've seen, one of the best films I've seen this year really is uh, Albert Maisel's final film. He was one of I think five, or he was one of like four credited directors. And there are also two co-directors on this movie called In Transit, which uh, is in the style of the Maisel's brothers documentaries, a verite film in which uh, Maisel's and his crew embedded themselves on the Empire Builder Amtrak line, which is the longest train line in America. It goes from the Pacific Northwest to Chicago. It takes about three days. And they just were on this, this train, and, and I think they took a few trips, but they edited it as, really as if it's one. Uh, and they just talked to these people that happened to be on the trains and, and sharing the same space for a limited period of time, these strangers passing in the night, often, you know, during the night in these incredible views as the train wends its way through, uh, through the mountains and through the plains and everything else. And it's, it's a really beautiful cross section slash snapshot of, uh, American life in motion and the promise of movement versus, uh, the reality of it. It's very hopeful in its own way and, and wistful and is really one of those perfectly formed final films. Uh, you couldn't ask for something more bittersweet. And, uh, so that was something that was really strong. And there was also a documentary that was less formally interesting, uh, but so sensitively done that you can't help but recommend it, which is called Autism in Love. Saw this um, too. Yeah, and it's uh, it's what it's about are these four autistic people who are on the autistic they are on the autism spectrum, but they're close enough to I don't know what the proper rhetoric is, but fully functioning or, or normal feels like a dirty word, but uh, that they can see. You know, they're a stone's throw away from being fully functioning, and they're aware of how close they are. And, and I think in some ways that makes it a lot more difficult for them because they're cognizant of uh, how they are not I could tell, normal. I can tell you right now and, I would cry. I would cry at this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. We well, haven't even you know, gotten to the part that will <laughs> Right. So, oh, God, you know, as the, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, as the title might suggest, Autism in Love, it's about the uh, the the angle here to sort of look at these lives is through their romantic lives and um, the difficulties they're in and, and the shape they take. And uh, there is one of the, one of the couples, well, well there's one of the, the subjects rather is married to a woman who I believe is autistic. Uh, it's not explicitly, it's not she's explicitly autistic, clear. But she is, she's at a place in her life where the amount of affection she can get from an autistic man makes sense to her. Right. She, she is. has terminal cancer. And, uh, they, I mean, you can imagine. And they've been married goes. for like 15 years at the point that we've yeah, right. them. And, um, yeah, and you can it, just see where it goes from there. <laughs> you know, is this, is this great filmmaking? I don't know. It's extremely sensitive filmmaking. Um, it, it could not be less condescending. I actually read a review that was written by an autistic critic earlier today that was very complimentary of this movie. And I am going to defer to him. 
uh, on those points. But uh, I, there are points in this movie that were just so emotionally overwhelming that I, well, I was watching it on a link on my computer and had to uh, just look at the ground more or less and <laughs> just listen to what was happening because uh, it was like staring at the sun. Um, I don't know, Katie, but, but you, the, did you? Well, like the it? thing about Autism and Love that I think brings up about Tribeca is that, as you said, I don't necessarily think it's a great documentary and I wouldn't, you know, I'm the last to say what a great documentary is, but I think there's, especially with documentaries, Why? there's just so many ideas. Well, I mean, I, I'm not, I have not seen enough documentaries to, you know, name the best of the form, but I think with documentaries and the reason that Tribeca does so well at this, there's just a lot of documentary stories to tell and they are fascinating. And when you're getting this kind of true story told to you, even if it's not groundbreaking or like the most innovative form you've ever seen, like with autism and love, you can just tell this really simple, straightforward human story in a documentary form and be completely captivating. And I think that's why Tribeca in particular, which, you know, has this problem where most of the best American independents will go to Sundance. But with d- documentaries, there's just so many. They're easier to make. They're cheaper. In, I mean, not easier, but they're cheaper. The, you know, the access level can be a little bit lower. So you can get more interesting stories in the documentary form. Mm. And that's why I feel like, you know, if you go spend a week in New York City and go to the Tribeca Film Festival and just see documentaries, like, that's not a bad way to spend a week in the spring. Tribeca also gets the support of people like or companies like HBO. You know, yes. Sundance does as well, but because HBO is constantly putting out documentary film and especially in sports documentaries, they have a few this year um, that I'm still that are playing at the end. So we haven't I don't know. David may have seen yeah, some the ESPN but, um, part of the festival. Yeah, they have a lot of support in the documentary field. Um, yeah, HBO well, there's an HBO documentary that uh, yeah. I saw. And I don't uh, David Patches, I don't think you guys saw it. The, uh, the Cannibal Cop doc that isn't called Cannibal Cop. Thought Crimes. Thought, Thought Crimes. crimes. Uh, that is going to be on HBO, I think, in May. Yeah, it's, not too uh, not too long from now. It's, it's actually out... directed by David Carr's daughter. If yeah. I, uh, yeah, yeah, her his twenty uh, six year old daughter, which is the know, God massive. damn it! I know, I know. <laughs> what have we done with our lives? This, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, since we were twenty six. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! You know, we've been doing this since we were twenty six, uh, and that's another fascinating. You know, it clearly wasn't made for a huge amount of money. Like it's mostly about this uh, filmmaker Aaron Lee Carr, like going through the effort of making a connection with this guy who was the cannibal cop. He was kind of this tabloid fixture, this guy who was, uh, you know, put on trial for being on this fetish website, talking about wanting to cannibalize women, you know, this really, these really disturbing conversations, but there was very little evidence that he was ever going to go through with it. And it kind of really goes through the process of determining how likely it is, how much of a threat he was, whether or not there was room to convict and kind of, never comes down on one side or the other and explores a lot of the sides of it. And again, I don't necessarily think it's a great documentary, but it brought up a lot of ideas. And Did they ultimately convict him? They did, and then they overturned it. So that's so the, it's, yeah. still, it's still in the he's works, I believe. He's I free thought. now, but there's also... He, so he's free now. He's at, living with his mom. He's rid of the ankle bracelet, but he... Uh, the the government appealed, I believe. So there's another trial possibly pending. What's interesting about this case is that it's a lot about like our online activity and what, yeah. how how our actions and our lives are tied to internet. That it's like a second consciousness, and it seems to be a theme at this year's Tribeca Film Festival because there's a whole side of it, the storyscapes, which is virtual reality or or interactive 
films um, yeah. that have to do with there's an app now. Uh, oh God, I'm gonna forget the name. If anyone cares, tweet me. But it's basically like an app. Uh, you're you're a personal therapist, and you go through this ten day program with her, and it's it's very strange. Again, is this part of all, Tribeca, or is this yeah, this is part of Tribeca, okay. um, and they had this on display for people to kind of engage with and get started with the program. But apparently, she you know calls you at night and like gets very involved in your life and kind of intertwines around yes. reality and vir- the virtual is- reality displays are the same way it's all or and there's some um, interactive docs about like how cookies work and they you know they come off the page they're not cookies just like you watching thing, no. yes like yeah yeah so yeah. interactive documentaries that are kind of five-part documentaries um very very fascinating stuff but again it's all about that our lives on Google are exactly the same as how our brains are working. It is, the two are the same, more and more. I'm so excited that this is now in the independent film sphere. Like, I'm, I'm going to the Stanley Film Festival at you the end are? of the month. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I'm so jealous. I yeah. want Landon Zakheim uh, runs it. It's, I really, really want to Name go there. Drop. It's no, going to be nice. He, We're going to see some old him, It got me really excited about the festival, and I really wanted to go. Unfortunately, I can't, but... Yeah, I'm going to head up. I'm trying to get as much cleared under my press pass as possible, but I'm definitely interested in all the experienced sort of things that are coming through because horror VR is like really uh, being embraced by independent filmmakers. And so I'm glad that's also happening in uh, Tribeca and whatnot. And uh, I think we talked about it on our Sundance podcast. Yeah, Patches has been kind of exploring the virtual reality side of film festivals, which I think is really an interesting beat you've created for yourself. Yeah, this year at Tribeca, they had an install. uh, You know, a lot of the stuff that I did with VR at Sundance was sit down and put basically an iPhone on your face and engage with it. And this year they had um, something where you're actually walking around. You have a cord and you're like in this walled off space and, and it's basically like walking around a fake gallery and interacting it's a it was a documentary about palestinian israeli conflict you know this this time-honored uh, mm, yeah documentary <laughs> topic i want to see that time uh, now, now you're talking to people in, in a three-dimensional space which was kind of neat uh, i wish i had you know looked up the names of all these things before we were talking about them like a smart person would have um, but it's all like, out there on trip do you feel like this kind of virtual reality thing is a better home for Tribeca to have because they have the problem of competing with Sundance like maybe this oh I absolutely think this is the problem so with Tribeca I mean we're going a little long here but I did want to say that I haven't seen many good films uh at Tribeca unfortunately uh you know I'm having the kind of traditional Tribeca experience this year where I've seen a lot of indie films that feel like uh, the rejects of other festivals, unfortunately. A lot of the narrative stuff is pretty... It's it's garbage, to put it really bluntly and crass. Uh, and I, I got to see William Monaghan's film Mojave with Garrett Hedlund and Oscar Isaac, and that was actually pretty fun if you want Cormac McCarthy's entourage. The but, name is Poe Dameron. <laughs> okay. uh, um, spoiler, Jesus, David. But really yeah. what... I'm I'm starting to believe is that Tribeca, you know, Katie, you and I went to a George Lucas and Stephen Colbert talk the other day, which was kind of interesting. It could have been yeah. put, Excuse me? put together. A, oh, yeah, hey, I'm sorry. David was there, too. <laughs> da- David was asleep, so I don't really count that. No, uh, I was not. I don't know if David wrote about it, so he doesn't really I count. I did. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that could have been a little more exciting, but that's on the right track. Like, get these interesting people together and to butt heads because they're going to provoke each other and... and Get great quotes or great get great conversations started, and yeah, I wish Tribeca was just York talks. Anyway. 
It was just interactive and maybe the 10 best films, you know, maybe all documentary. It feels like it, it just continues to think it can compete with these other film festivals. It just can't. We can't make time for well, most of what's most of the films there uh, to even give everything the time of day. Who knows what I'm missing necessarily, but uh, it's just I, very I don't difficult. know if they think they can create qualitatively, but they're, they're, they've got a huge endowment. They're making money. Uh, I think that of the films that will premiere there, all of the top 10, if not the top 15 or more, will probably be documentaries. But uh, I've sort of steered clear of a lot of the, f- the fiction films, so I can't really say with any authority. Well, that's, that's why I was very I – was, I was happy that Monaghan's Mojave was half decent because his first film, London Boulevard, was a complete disaster. <laughs> and at least uh, Mo- uh, Mojave has Oscar Isaac as what I'm describing as Hulk Hogan meets Christopher Lloyd's character from Dennis the Menace. I feel uh, like a monster for missing this movie. As it is, as it's pretty Oscar fun. Isaac. I can't believe I haven't seen and it. And Garrett Hedlund, you know. Yeah, Lost track like of Garrett time. Headland. Lost track of time. <laughs> anyway. You're contractually out. We lost track of time of this segment. Who, Tr- who was in Tron. Is it? Yes, exactly. That's pretty much why I went to Tribeca this year, trying to get Tron 3 interviews. <laughs> <laughs> you joke, but I have a number of our colleagues are so probably going to Mojave just to get Star Wars interviews. So. Oh, hell yeah. Yikes. No one else in this conversation has. But Jealous. Yeah, everyone listen to me talk about the Age of Adeline. I want to talk about what seems to be between this and the Star Wars trailer, the emergent era of Harrison Ford giving a shit. Because in the Age of Adeline, as much as it is a weird, not necessarily great movie, he's doing real acting and he's connecting with Blake Lively, which God knows is not an easy thing to do. And uh, as I think the whole world knows, at the end of the Star Wars trailer, the you know the money he shot. He says is, one line of dialogue and smiles, oh and it's God. like the only time you've seen the man yeah, smile. A believable what, smile. What is it with this guy? Why right, do people well, have such a boner for him? He's the most boring person alive, on screen or off. Who we, fucking we'll, cares? All right, we've, well, we've David, this that's the premise of this segment. So. We're going to talk about him as if we care. Yeah. Uh, Dave. I should have gone with patches. <laughs> you know what? Just go sit in the corner with patches. Uh, Dave, do you feel like we're also in an era of Harrison Ford suddenly giving a shit? Um, I think at some point Harrison Ford has to turn the corner and realize that he's like mortal and he might as well have fun with it. And I hope he's turned that <laughs> corner because like the last time I talked to Harrison Ford like in person or was like in a room where I could like read his energy was morning glory i believe Man. and he was just not want to not did not want to be there and like every time before that in my short movie journalism career that i've ever run across harrison ford he's been super grumpy and you know i'm kind of of the opinion that like after the first indiana jones movie he kind of just stopped doing uh like character work as an actor and just sort of you know phoned in when he needed to and you know, I love Patriot Games as much as everybody else, and I want to see I him love kick Morning Glory. Oh yeah, and I mean, seeing him kick Gary Oldman off a plane because he's the president is basically just like Harrison Ford president. But like, if Harrison Ford can do whatever he originally started in like this game of acting and somehow pull a performance like that old spark out of Harrison Ford again, then I would totally love to see some old man Harrison Ford movies. I just wish it was with new characters in Age of Adeline and less with. You know, like bringing back Blade Runner and Han Solo and all that. Well, crap. Blade Runner, I want to set aside because 
I there's maybe no one treading that more movie more than me. But with Age of Adeline, what's interesting? I mean, he really is doing the his thing. best like, performance is in a movie where he may be a robot. <laughs> you think Blade like, Runner is his best performance? You know, I, I think thought we did the performance that most plays to his strengths. Uh, you don't think Han Solo does? Uh, yeah, yeah, Han Solo does, but it's one shtick now over yeah, four I mean, movies. Han Solo and Indiana Jones are the same shtick, but they're like the best shtick. Like Humphrey Bogart was a shtick. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fair argument. I just uh, you just don't care. Humphrey about Bogart Ford. has a lot. First of all, Humphrey Bogart is a lot more interesting in pretty much every way. Again, on screen or off screen than Harrison Ford. But I understand your argument. I uh, I just I think that you know he has he occupies a, a place of idol worship for a whole generation of people. Um, Throw me the one, idol. One generation of people. Whip, David. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> and I as a Someone who enjoyed Star Wars movies well enough and uh, is a slightly bigger but still very casual fan of Indiana Jones. Uh, you know, I, you take him out of those movies, he is just a sack of indifferent meat. Are you I, not happy to see like people who, I mean, the fact that we have people who were famous in another era are oh, still around, like anyone to that extent who we still have acting, like... I mean, when Robert Redford deigns to act, like that also feels like a victory to me. But that's different because Robert Redford's Deigning to act is first of all, he's taking on interesting, challenging projects. I didn't like yes, uh, all his loss, but still. Yes. Um, and and at the same time, everything, all the appeal for Harrison Ford is purely nostalgia, and nostalgia is ruinous, and I hate it. So, well, but Harrison uh, Ford has like this charisma to him. I mean, that it's like I mean, Paul Newman did more interesting acting, but like it's this similar thing of like here is someone who is on screen as a you know when he is playing to his strengths, there is no one better at playing to that strength. And what's crazy in the age of Adeline is there's a guy who plays young Harrison Ford and he kind of, I mean, it's an impression. Like the guy is, a, you know, a good mimic. It's not that impressive a performance, but you kind of get this like time travel effect of seeing young t- Harrison Ford. You're like, oh my God, I've been wanting him back so badly. Oh, and does he do like real- the laugh smirk thing that young Harrison yeah, oh, Ford Yeah, oh yeah, and he do? does like the deep, he has like the deep, like kind of sarcastic voice. It's it's really, it's a good man, impression. I want to see this movie. I, I'm also like see the age of Adeline, man. A, a Blake Lively fan despite myself. Like I watched every episode of Gossip Girl and like what was the last should... movie she was in savages yep saw it yep so should, like uh, well yeah because she had it. she had wargasms where they had wargasms she, yeah, she did uh, wargasms yeah, and that wargasms. was good enough for like three years we didn't need any more blake lively but now if, if she actually manages to bring something out of harrison ford or vice versa I don't that's know that worth a look her yeah the thing is the, the two of them are kind of a uniquely alien presence i won't talk about this more because i believe we're reviewing age of headline this week um like having someone imitating a young Harrison Ford feels fantastic. And I feel like Harrison Ford himself is bringing a little bit of that back just by, you know, opening up a little, like loosening up the tiniest bit on camera. And I, I don't know. I want to call it now. The Harrison Ford resurgence is coming back. I heard you on the wireless back in 52. Lying awake and tent tuning in on you. If I was young, it didn't stop you coming through. weekend or past thursday the day that the star wars trailer dropped i promise we won't talk about the star wars trailer in detail patches you can stay here this is a safe ah! 
But there was tell everyone one. that I stood, I sat on the uh, the the edge of the theater for the George Lucas talk in case they played the you trailer, did. so that you I would run sat away. In complete I was, tension. I was in real fear. In, cl- in case George Lucas talked about the movie, he is not involved. I think in, yeah, I, I think you're making this not fun for yourself. But that's a different. <laughs> it's segment not three. fun anyway. Yeah, we'll eventually we will it. have a segment three entirely about this <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah, if 88 million people saw it, but you didn't really, who's weird at that point? But the we'll, only no, people we'll get in America or George Lucas. And I am being ostracized. Do not. Anyway, that's a good point. An event called Star Wars Celebration is where this trailer emerged last Thursday. And uh, when they announced that they would be live streaming the panel with J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy and, you know, various special guests, uh, there are various people who had bought tickets to the Star Wars Celebration in Anaheim who were kind of grumbling that they had already, you know, paid their way. I mean, a lot of these were entertainment writers who are, for the purposes of this conversation, not who were most concerned about. Um, and at the same time this was going on, uh, I and David and Patches and were kind of experiencing the tri- Tribeca Film Festival via Vimeo and watching films that were at the festival but not actually being part of the festival. And then all three of us wound up at this talk between Stephen Colbert and George Lucas. It was For me, at least, it was kind of the first, aside from the opening night film, which was way uptown and did not was not in Tribeca, the neighborhood at all, uh, it was kind of the first Tribeca event I had been to. And it reminded me of the value even though it's inconvenient and you have to wait in line and get your ticket torn of actually being in person at an event and not just being able to experience the whole thing virtually online. And there's this thing where, you know, like obviously you need to be in person and experience the world and that's what events are for. But I find myself really easily falling into the trap of all of this information is available to me on my Twitter feed. And there are events like both star Wars celebration and Tribeca that I don't know that I would pay my own money to go to, but I'm glad I get the information from, but the value of being there to me also seems immeasurable as inconvenient and disgusting as it is. And I wonder if you guys have feel the sense of these events becoming less relevant, not just for us as people who have to cover it, but in a world where everyone's more easily getting things online, or is it just so obvious that gatherings, not just human gatherings, like people getting together for dinner, but on this scale, basically built around a model that doesn't exist anymore. Is it so obvious that these will continue to exist because of that? Like, does anybody else want to be around people in person or is it just me clinging to something? <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it, anymore? I think that it's, it's nice that we're starting to get more access for people who are journalists and just like access to the information. Cause it used to be like, in terms of conventions, it went through this weird loop where, like, you were paying because you wanted to be there and meet other people and had, like, nothing to do with the events. And then all of a sudden, the events started getting really cool. And then we went through, like, a three- or four-year period where, like, news was breaking at these events and people were, like, paying to be the first to, you know, see something or hear something. And now it's gone back to, like, kind of the original purpose that all these things started, which is, like, you want to, like be in the physical space with somebody you admire and meet your peers and I mean, that's everybody everyone kind of enjoys together. To, to Comic-Con for it, right? Not not the, the jaded journalist types, but the people who wait in line for this stuff like well, for overnight and 48 hours. Like these people, you know, I'll never forget my experience from Comic-Con three or two or three years ago. When, yeah, the Firefly uh, panel and then the well, not, no, Well, the Firefly panel was insane, but yeah. I mean, yeah, that was great. Uh, you get in a room and people just 
want to be there. But I, I'm thinking of my Hall H experience, which was when I the line was miles long, wrapped around San Diego Convention Center, and I just needed to get in because it was my job, and I was one of the jaded journalists. And but I I connected with some people that I you know followed me on Twitter or whatever. Might be listening to this podcast. They right might now. be listening to this podcast mm. right now. But they were in line overnight waiting for the Hobbit because they were they were big Tolkien geeks. And that was awesome. I mean, I was really happy. First off, I was really happy they let me budge in line, which was a very, uh, you know, I had to get over some moral complications there because I was like, I can't really David budge in line. Right that now. seems bad. Well, he can get over that. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, got in, I got in line. I got my job done. And, and I got to hang out with people who wanted to really be there and, like, soak it all up and be the first people to see the Hobbit footage because this was before any of the movies came out and people really started getting down, I guess, on the Hobbit trilogy. But, it, you know... Dave's exactly right. The, the level of fandom, um, you know, being soaking up the vibes from other people, that's a, that's a really important part of getting excited for things and also, probably, I mean, remaining fans through the thick uh, of something like the Hobbit trilogy where it might not go according to plan. You still want to come out liking Tolkien and you want to come out liking the Hobbit movies just because you're a fan of them. I mean, quality isn't really the point here. It's just seeing it on screen. Yeah. So, you know, right, can I well, tell you my first thought about this, which is like, yes, on the one hand, I think this entire culture is sort of cancerous to the pro- production. Well, hang on. I'm not, what, just in, about in, I'm not just talking things? about Comic Con. I'm talking on. about film festivals too. Hang yeah. on. Enjoying uh, things together. Cancer. However, cancer to society. No, but that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I, I think this stuff can be dangerous to, to, um, you know, art and, <laughs> and film is in this bizarre place. Art can only be enjoyed by yourself. In anyway, a, in a lonesome uh, room. My my genuine thought, as ridiculous as this is, uh, maybe just because my head has been so occupied by doom and gloom over the past few months, is that like I, I'm taking a sort of Zen "what's the harm" approach to all of this. Like, wow. you, know, oh, you read about, you read about like beheadings. Yeah, I, from ISIS and these boats from Libya that are overturning. And you know what? If people want to wait outside for 24 hours to peaceably watch a fucking Hobbit trailer, God be with them. Like, go. Is that a saying? I don't even know. Uh, like, go be happy. I think it's go, go with God. Go with God. Go with God. Whatever. Uh, clearly, I am not going with God or vice versa. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, there, there are worse things in the, in the context. So in the context of the universe, that is my stance on the matter. In the context of a culture podcast, I think it's evil. Well, I think even you could be more forgiving <laughs> knowing that it enriches material. You know, there's something to be said about lackluster movies that are enjoyed in large groups. I probably enjoyed Tron Legacy, for instance. Lost track of time. Uh, more because I was with a group of people who were kind of nerding out all beforehand. Oh, just Jordan Hoffman. Um, but you know that's a big part of it, and that and movies can be enjoyed that way. But I'm actually curious about other types of group activities because I know Katie that you are big on like concerts. You seem to be going to concerts all the time. Can't stand them. Hate concerts. Do not want to be in a room with other people listening to music. On concerts than you would think, given my track record. And that seems to be what will prevail as far as group experiences. Yeah, you think concerts will live forward. longer than like group film No, experiences? no. I do, I do. It's always going to be sports. Oh. For yeah. the history of all mankind, the live events that people want to attend the most will be sports. Well, I'm sitting recording this episode in a Rangers jersey <laughs> that I wore while watching the playoff game on my couch with my girlfriend who is ill with a cold 
and it was as far removed from being at uh well this game was at the console arena in, in pittsburgh uh but being at the live event as as you can be but didn't you also just go to a live event a live rangers game like really recently no, I went to, I watched the first game in the series uh, at a Rangers bar with oh. a bunch of friends. All right, um, so, so that's a part, I mean, that's a simulacrum of this. And the bar was uh, adjacent to Madison Square Garden where the game was being played. But right, not but all of us could afford tickets. It's still on the pro side of doing something social interaction because you could have just gotten, like, download the NHL app and refreshed it every once in a while to check on the score. At the oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not disagreeing with Dave's statement that uh, that sports will will always have this appeal of, of being there. I think even just to verify that it's happening and it's not being simulated in some way, you know, I think uh, huh. you need that live element. You don't see it. I, I don't know. I, I see a difference between a group of people watching a musician or watching a play or watching a movie together than I do sports where you're like, you root for a team. You don't root for Kelly Clarkson when she's singing on stage when you're definitely oh. at a Kelly Clarkson concert oh, I like do. I am. Let me go buy tickets right now. I gotta uh, go. I don't, I'm not exactly sure about that. Like, the whole Jay-Z yeah. and Beyonce tour was fueled around the idea that it was like a celebration of their fans and their family, which had nothing to do with their music. <laughs> well, you were rooting for Blue always, Ivy the whole time. It's inherently cynical of me to think this, but I think it's also inherently cynical to ever pitch anything as a celebration of fans, the thank you to the fans when you're taking exorbitant amounts of their money. The Star Wars no way celebration. Yeah. I mean, well. Merchandising. I mean, merchandising. Where's the space yeah, well, ball I mean, celebration? See, that's the, that's the thing, though, because that is, that's the line you want drawn. If they're going to, you know, take fans' money and give fans access, you want it to be in a three-day smush where it lures in the diehards who are willing to pay the money, and everybody else just gets the information through a live stream. And those diehards are ecstatic. Like, the people who were there seemed really happy about it. And unlike Comic-Con, in a way, which I feel like has gotten unpleasant to the point that no one actually enjoys themselves. I mean, and, you know, I'm not here to pick conventions against each other. But when people go there and they have the cosplay and they do have that kind of, like, coming home sense, like, they don't care if it's being live streamed. So what's what's there to care about? I think, like, the best example that probably everybody has in their town to point at is like your local showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show which yeah. like sometimes you have locals even involved making it a live event that you have to go to but like everybody has access to that movie I'm sure it's streaming in multiple places at this point and so it's really just about creating that sort of togetherness experience which I think we're only going to want more of as we push like the everyday things to the internet like Although, I'll watch I'll watch oh. all these live streams like for apple and whatnot and never want to go to a live apple event but if there's like you know a marvel centric convention in our future because they aren't going to san diego comic-con yeah i'm gonna want to do that that's gonna be the one thing i'm gonna save up for all year I, I i feel like when there are options that you could enjoy this as a group or enjoy it solo and enjoy in solo enjoy is in quotes solo. <laughs> yes enjoy on solo <laughs> oh no spoiler spoiler um, <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, but it's easier to be cynical when you're watching it for far. You know, we knew grown men weeping at whatever Star Wars nonsense was happening at Star Wars Celebration this past weekend. Um, we'll know grown men weeping when Star Wars hits theaters. We'll know um, grown men weeping if the Rangers win the Stanley Cup. Yes, it's true. Oh my God. But will, when you're watching you it from afar, <laughs> when you're watching it from afar or you're, and, or you're waiting to enjoy it on your own time, when you're not forced to do it with the congregation that's amassing to enjoy something, you are definitely more cynical. People 
were making fun of people who were weeping at Star Wars trailers. You were making fun of people I, weeping I, at Star you know, Wars trailers. I definitely was. Of course yeah. I was. Who's weeping at a Star Wars trailer? I'm not watching It would have required more assholeness than I, even I have within me, but I would have been laughing at the people weeping at Star Wars event had I been there in person. But, but in uh, that room, you can imagine it being... Very emotional, or of you know, course, I, of course, you didn't even course. need to be in the room. Okay, as somebody no. who didn't weep, but who completely understands why those people wept at the Star Wars trailer, which we because won't, of the music, which yeah, <laughs> so, for a lot of reasons. One of the things George Lucas clarified very nicely in the Tribeca panel was he said fifty percent, but I think he was underselling it of the effect of a film is the music, and I think all this nostalgia, everything else, it's wrapped in that. Was it James Williams? John, 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 John Williams. What the fuck? Was it what James Williams? What is wrong with you? All these watch John Williams. You can, keep them stra- you can keep track of them. But uh, uh, it's all wrapped up in that score. What I actually like about film George festivals as opposed to conventions and the other things that we're talking about that are mostly for fans is if you happen across like a middling movie that has like a great sequence and you see that with the right audience it will enhance the entire movie for you it's not always helpful for people as like critics but like i remember the screening i had of like uh attack the block was like an open to the public screening which isn't a film we were, festival. At the same, we were at the same screening that was a great screening yeah but like we if we walked in like everybody else, not knowing what we were going to see, like vaguely knowing that it was going to be cool and alien based, but just like the moment of discovery of a movie, had that happening in a group made it more powerful. Well, that's definitely the joy of a film festival. Speaking of Attack the Block, David and I saw that movie together the first time we ever went to South by. We were probably drunk off our asses at a draft house we were at the in the Austin. And Edgar Wright came out, hyped up, sup, and, you know, it was a blast. It was at midnight, and, you know, I, I have not went, I have not gone back to that movie. Um, if only Maybe because either. after time, I'm like, was that that good? Everyone seems to love it. I hope but it was so good. It was a lot of fun at that moment, definitely. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. well, now you're kind of sounding like the Michael Bay argument of a movie where, like, he's competing with theme parks more than he is competing with cinema. But right. I don't think that, but I don't think that's really the entirety of what it is to see a movie with people. And especially at a film festival where it's not even about, like, having the vibe of the audience. It's about, as opposed to a convention where you're going in to support what you know you already love, at a film festival, you kind of go in to find the thing that you're going to love. Or, like, not even love, but, like, enjoy and throw your support behind. And that, like, that what sense, a, not just of discovery, which you can kind of have if you sure. watch a Vimeo link, but like doing <laughs> it in a room full of people and like feeling that moment and like kind of being a united front coming out of it. That's not only what you get from seeing a movie in a theater, but what you get from kind of going somewhere and being part of a theater experience that isn't going to exist somewhere I, else. Well, remove yourself from the film festival environment. Has there been a time where you've seen a movie in just a public theater on a whim where the fact that you saw it in, in public made it better I oh mean, all where... the time when i saw bridesmaids i saw it at the court street theater in brooklyn and half the jokes got drowned out by laughter and it was i mean everyone has had an experience like that especially with a comedy it yeah you just hear about time. it less and less now and i'm talking well, we hear not... about it less and less from ourselves i don't know well we hear it well... less from ourselves but i'm here I'm, i hear it less from people you know it, that i engage with on twitter i try to remove myself from the bubble that we're in and talk to people who are going out to the theaters and seeing movies but a lot of people are you know we talk about this all the time streaming on netflix or, or renting yeah. or whatever um you don't I hear a lot of people's reactions to movies or what they're excited about to see in movies, but I don't hear a lot about people's experiences like, man, I'm so glad I saw this movie with this audience. 
Um, sometimes that comes up with the F- Fast and Furious movies, but mm-hmm. again, this is about the sublime whatever that's taking place with Vin Diesel's bald head knocking the Rock's bald head and uh, Jason Statham's bald heads in there, and it's also it's You're also beautiful. You're making me really want to go back to Court Street and watch Fast and Furious Seven. Maybe, but you don't really hear fun. about the audience. People well, I mean, don't but- say that. Like, why is this movie great? It's because the people got it. That's exactly the argument we're making is because that's a hard thing to manufacture. So that's why something like film festivals and conventions becomes where you go to chase that thrill. Because I don't know that like, I don't know, maybe like when I saw the Dark Knight with a mass audience, there was some sort of idea that there was something special. But again, that's like a premiere. So that's more like a film festival thing where like discovery makes you kinder and makes it more exciting. I still want to know why I hate concerts. It is not fun. Why you don't do you like f- you don't like fun? You don't like They're hearing about Star Wars. You don't I, like concerts. The only good thing about the only good thing about concerts is occasionally secondhand weed smoke from Dave Matthews, who's smoking <laughs> on stage. No, that was my yeah, one time. Yeah, the problem is that you're seeing Dave Matthews. I sort of aged out of concerts where you <laughs> are standing in a in a crowded. Mosh densely packed group of people yes. and jostling back and forth yes. uh, and standing for hours and hours. Well, but, the Juggalos you know, I, miss I, you. They wish you didn't retire. I know, I know. But I had a, a great time at the Bjork concert a few weeks ago. It was not the first one that I had seen, but like all of them, it was one uh, that was at a, a nice seated venue. This one was at the King's, the renovated King's Theater in Brooklyn. And uh, I think sitting down, being able to show, show up, no opening act, you show up and Bjork comes on five minutes later. And there's an intermission where you can hang out with that guy from uh, from Focus who plays the <laughs> the friends. I see him everywhere, and I have for the last tw- 15 years. Um, I have no idea who you. Mean. But uh, you know the the larger guy who's the f- comic relief in Focus. Focus. Oh, he's great. He's he's good in everything, and he's getting more prominent roles. I love him. I can never remember his name. Um, Wait, Adrian but, Martinez? Uh, yeah, Mr. New York me? City. He is he is New York City for me. I mean, I, if that's who we're talking about, he then was also I in um, oh the Ben Stiller movie, um, yeah, Walter Mitty. This, Walter Mitty. This is exactly <laughs> the guy I'm talking about. Uh, yes. I see him literally everywhere. Yeah, he is a New York staple. You do not make a movie in New York without Adrian Martinez. And in it. He's great, and he likes Bjork. Um, anyway, that's the kind of concert that I can enjoy, and uh, I think there is, you know, I I had listened to. I'm a big Bjork fan. I'd listened to Bjork's new record many, many, many times. I believe you're before. a Bjork dork. Bjork, I'm a Bjork dork. Uh, many times before seeing the concert, um, I was very familiar with it. And yet, when as soon as the the curtain lifted and she started performing the first song in her new album, I had a very intense emotional reaction that was not unlike that was not like anything that I had had while actually listening to the recorded version. Uh, so yeah, I think the live experience is still intact. I've got a Bjork related question. Yeah. I basically lived through the MoMA exhibit by your photos and coverage. I avoided it, despite my excitement, because it seemed like such a catastrophe. But I did buy the beautiful, highly recommended catalog that they made for the exhibit justifying it. Okay, so that's good. But no need. there wasn't a need to physically be there, is what I'm saying. Well, there could have been a need to physically be there if they'd found a way to make one. But uh, it, it sounded from uh, really from hundred percent of reports that it was a glorified hard rock uh, exhibit just that happened to be dedicated to Bjork and the idea of like looking at dresses with bizarre you know plastic models of Bjork mannequins wearing them uh, did not in any way appeal to me watching all of her music videos in a theater when I practically committed them all the memory in the first place seeing the one for Black Lake her new one that's fine I can 
I can wait. It sounded like a real clusterfuck. Uh, so, no. <laughs> well, it just seems like that would be a line where, you know, I don't know, museums? Museums might be my line that I'm trying to draw here. That I'm not mm-hmm. sure I could support that as being like a group activity that you should pay a whole bunch of money for. It's definitely educational, but in terms of education, like entertainment value. But like conventions, uh, film festivals, uh, panels and talks, I say if you like love like the subject matter of it, do it. You guys, Adrian Martinez has selfies uploaded to his INDB. He rules. I know exactly who you mean now. I'm if Adrian Martinez was in a Tribeca movie, Screw Vimeo. I will Wait, go to the theater. I feel like he's <laughs> certainly been in multiple Tribeca movies. Please don't he's tell in, me that. He's been in this many New York movies? Like, the odds are. Don't make Patches go to Tribeca again. <laughs> if he's in Star Wars, it will be the greatest film of all time. <laughs> That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. I'll be back later this week to talk about Age of Adeline. It might just be a monologue. Me talking about everything Blake Lively wore in the movie. That would be uh, beautiful. Because we still have one more week to go before Avengers comes out and summer movie season actually starts and it remains slim pickings out there. Uh, but one of us will be back. And in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer at Esquire.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, we have a website, FightingTheWorm.com, where we post all the episodes. You can comment. You can ask questions. You can give us shit. You can share the episodes. Everything is possible on FightingTheWorm.com. I am David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York, the editor at large of a beautiful British film magazine called Little White Lies. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at where else? Time Out US Film and L-W-L-I-E-S and Fit Were, but someone else is going to do that. You can find all of us together on uh, Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. Send us mean messages or nice ones. We'll read them. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA70. That's my Twitter handle. I write at latino-review.com, forbes.com, and geek.com. You heard a lot from me last week. You were subscribed to the Fighting in the War Room feed, which you are, you beautiful, beautiful person, you. Uh, Game of Thrones has started, so we've started Storm of Spoilers. We also did our Daredevil overview for the Thought Bubble, so if you've caught up with those 13 episodes, check it out. That is all at the website that Patches plugged earlier. That was some, like lightning speed plugging right there. Lots of uh, plug. I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-P-Y-R-I-C-H. And Twitter is also the place where you can find all of us at FITWR, where we'll be fighting and scrapping and yelling over this week's lightning round question. Or actually, we'll really just be hugging and uh, staring deeply into each other's eyes. What was the lightning round question, Dave? In honor of Age of Adeline, what's a straight-up romance you actually love? That's uh, all for this week. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.